Welcome to Investment Magazine's ongoing podcast series, The Future of Super. These podcasts are an in-depth series of conversations with key decision makers, leaders, and industry stakeholders at a time when the now maturing system is being challenged to provide retirement solutions for older Australians, as well as continuing the work of building assets for those still in the workforce. We explore critical topics for executives responsible for governance, for operations and outcomes, addressing vital issues relevant to the future of Australia's retirement saving system. Please visit investmentmagazine.com.au or get in touch to join the conversation. And now, please enjoy this episode. AIA Australia is a leading life and wellbeing specialist with nearly 50 years experience and a commitment to help Australians live healthier, longer, better lives. Visit aia.com.au to find out more. Hello and welcome to the second in the series of the Future of Super podcast for 2022. I'm Stuart Hawkins, editor of Investment Magazine, and today we're in conversation with two women who have both been instrumental in shaping today's superannuation landscape. But not only that, they've also been tirelessly championing the cause for equity in retirement, highlighting the particular problems and issues women have faced over the past three decades or so of Australia's compulsory super system. Kate Wood, a former national chair of Women in Super, has worked in the profit-to-member super sector for more than 20 years, is a past president of the Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees, was the chair of Care Super, she was CEO of AGEST Super, and before that, CEO of the Trade Union Training Authority and a trade union official. Robbie Campo has worked in industry super for more than 20 years, is a passionate advocate for the economic security of women in retirement, and has often spoken about the systemic problems with the super system, which she has said actively discriminates against women. She is the group executive of brand, advocacy, and product at CBA Super, and is chair of Women in Super's policy committee. Thank you both for joining us. Today we. <laughs> no worries. Today, we'd like to talk about the theme of equity in super. The first topic we're going to try and tackle is what seems to be a frustratingly vexing one. Why? After three decades of tinkering, adjusting, regulating and re-regulating our super system by both sides of government, are women still retiring with about half the money as their male peers? Why are so many older women in danger of ending up basically in poverty? Why does this situation exist? What needs to be done to fix it? But secondly, we'd like to talk about the issues raised by the country's ageing population. Inequity in super from an age perspective, young versus old, tax concessions and intergenerational issues. So let's get started. Now, let's have a look at where we are now before we discuss solutions. What's the current state of play regarding super outcomes for women? Just how far are they behind men when it comes to retirement? Robbie, would you like to kick us off? Sure. And thank you, Stuart, for um, inviting us to speak on this very important topic. So, um, as uh, has been advocated strongly by Women Super and Kate um, involved for a very long time on the topic, and me as the current chair of the policy committee. Women are not getting the outcomes that they should be getting 
from our national retirement savings system. So currently women, um, the statistics show on, on average, retire with about 30% less than men. That's across the whole system. So the difference in outcomes that are being achieved by women compared to men are significant. They're systemic, so they're not caused by the choices of individual women. It's about the, the way the whole system operates. And the other thing I think that is very clear from the, the you know, that's been a subject matter that's been extensively studied and researched is that it's not going to improve unless something is done about it. So women are retiring with a lot less and for some women that means that they are living in very severe, you know, circumstances of financial distress and poverty, homelessness, um, and it's something actually that must be done. So while the super system has uh, delivered real gains to the Australian working population in terms of improving um, their outcomes in retirement, um, a bit more needs to be done in terms of the outcomes that are being achieved for Australia's retired women. I understand. So we are, we're, we're, I mean, okay, I suppose overall we're in a, we're in a good place. Well, we're in a better place than we were 30 years ago. But there seems to be this 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 terrible dichotomy, which which um, which, uh, as I said in the introduction, seems to be be very very vexing. But um, maybe Kate, we can ask you: How does this compare with 10 years ago, 20 years ago? Are we on an improving curve, or are things getting worse, or are they staying the same? How how, how is this comparing in your in in your experience? My, my experience, Stuart, goes back a very long time. And so I'll go back even more than 20 years. Because yes, please. I think it, it really does warrant um, recognition what a revolutionary difference compulsory super has made. So going back to my days as a union official, at that stage, only about um, 30% of the workforce overall had any superannuation. And most of those were men and they were in the public sector. So that that's what preceded the current compulsory system. And so the sort of campaigns of the 80s leading into the, the super guarantee legislation in the early 90s, um, that's what provoked it. Uh, and But it has had um, differential outcomes for women versus men, as Robbie's pointed out. And one way that we've um, characterised this in a report that Women in Super released was to look at the different generations of women. So if you look at um, the silent generation, the sort of um, pre-war generation, about 20% of them end up with some superannuation. And then with the boomers, the baby boomers, 40% of women end up with some super. Gen X, it's up to 80%, and now with millennials, 90% of them will be retiring with some super. So it's made a huge difference to women having some super at all and um, a, a very big difference to retirement outcomes for them, but it is not equitable. There have, and it, it, but that improvement, like say even in the last, we used to quote that women were retiring with, 47% less super than men. And that was the sort of stats that were coming out of APRA um, data. 
around the um, 2015-16. And now, as Robbie mentioned, the average is, um, say, 30% less. So there is this, this change that is improving things. But the question is, is it going to be equal? And the answer is no. Uh, we need to actually look at system settings, really, if we want to um, to get better outcomes for women. So that leads us to what are the causes of this? What are the root causes of this? How did the situation evolve? What are some of the contributing factors? Um, because you know, on paper, you know, it's sort of everybody gets 10% of their salary, um, you know, it all looks okay, it all looks even, it all looks fair. So what are the contributing factors that, that make the difference, What the, the, the poor outcomes for um, for women? So can we, can we examine some of those? Um, Robbie, do you want to start on that one? Sure. And I think that the drivers of the gender retirement gap, there's actually many factors that contribute, but I think they fall under three main headings. Um, one is the gender pay gap, which persists in Australia. So this is the difference between male and female earnings. Um, and, you know, it itself has a number of underlying drivers, including discrimination, um, industry segregation, and the fact that women tend to work in um, sectors that pay less. So um, nursing, teaching, service roles, um, as compared to the industries where there's high wages. So that's, that's the first one, and we can talk about that a little bit more perhaps. Um, the, second, um, the second main category is the impact of women continuing to bear primary responsibility for caring, unpaid caring roles in our community. So this sees women taking time off to have children and then having extended periods of part-time work um, and also having other times where they, for instance, are out of the workforce caring for parents. So they're often in that um, sandwich between, you know, caring for the younger generation and caring for the older generation. Um, so they're the first two categories of driver. The other one, which is one that we spend a lot of time thinking about, is actually settings within our system, which are not working to try and minimise that gender retirement gap they actually make it worse. So it is a little bit incredible that we have a system that is not doing everything it can to mitigate that gender difference that we're seeing in retirement. They're actually, um, you know, making the problem even worse than it already is. So I think that when you understand what's driving the gap, there are a number of different things that need to be done. But in some respects, the problems that are within our retirement income system are the most amenable to being reformed and fixed so as they work in favour of creating better equity in the system for women. Um, so I, I can talk to a bit more detail, but, Kate, I don't know if you want to add anything in terms of, you know, some of those broader categories. It's just the nature of superannuation too and how those two different um, areas of impact work for women, both their employment experience and the super settings. But I always like to go back to that super is pretty simple. It's like savings and that's based on income. Savings that goes in, there's a tax advantage that's there 
Um, and in our circumstance, that is one that is a flat tax, which is not progressive, so it is um, sort of less beneficial or not at all beneficial for low-income earners. And then you have investment, the, the beauty of compound interest. So it's a time aspect. Like the, the thing about super is that you want the money working for you from as early as possible. And women are disadvantaged in each of those areas. They're disadvantaged because their incomes are not as high. They're disadvantaged because the tax is preferential to high-income earners, two-thirds of whom are men. So two-thirds of all the tax benefits in the super system go to men. And the investment earnings where their income has this uh, traditionally, if they're having children, is broken down. Their income is not going in early and compound interest. They're, they're, women are often trying to save late in life where the money is not going to work for them. Can we mention briefly... Um, or there has been talk about it recently, um, the difficult or unfavourable outcomes after divorce as well. Is that a, is that a, is that a major factor? Or, or not, well, a, a factor in given that a lot of relationships do break down? Uh, well, I think the evidence shows that clearly it has been a factor. Um, often superannuation is the only um, only asset that's um, available um, for divorcing couples. And I think the challenge and the effort that was involved in while there were laws that enabled super splitting, the mechanisms that supported that made it impossible or unaffordable for women to pursue that. So that's actually a beneficial change that has occurred recently. So um, changes to make it administratively much easier for women to be able to um, get access to information about their male partner's superannuation because typically um, it's the male partner who's had the opportunity to accumulate more and then to provide a smoother or easier administrative process for those assets to be separated. So that's a really sensible, logical change that's been made recently that should enable more women to be able to get a fair division of those assets at, at separation. And, and even where you have a couple where the um, wealth is higher, traditionally women have prioritised perhaps acquiring the home for stability for children and then they are not in a high um, income earning capacity situation basically because they they do have responsibility for the children and so they don't bounce back or recover usually as um, quickly as their partners yes and, and of course it's harder to uh, to make um, uh, make money investable money off uh, say the the family's primary place of residence um, whereas mm -hmm. you can accrue more money. Um, if it's uh, held in super um, or in other, other other forms of investment, so I suppose that makes part of the um, part of the difference. So, but Kate, maybe we 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 pose this question to you. Um, what's the breakdown? Do you think? I mean, how much how much of the fault lies with the super system, and how much is systemic? Because the 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 the, the system 
we, well, I mean, we, there was a lot of regulation that went down uh, last year in the Your Future, Your Super um, um, uh, re- regulations that got put through. So the system has been played with. The system's been played with so much. So how much is so? So what, what if if you were to break it down, how much is systemic? Well, I think it is. It's fundamentally systemic with how our system is designed, as Robbie said, in that. Uh, and I've commented, I think it's very much aligned to the tax structures within within superannuation and also to the caring responsibilities. And I guess it's how the system deals with that. So, for example, we see now that the um, paid parental leave scheme does not have super guarantee payments associated with it. So that's the system recognising that people take time out of the workforce but not applying superannuation savings. So there's that gap there for women. Now, that's not the total solution to address that, but it is a fundamental problem um, with our super system that it's not recognised. Like you'll find in um, the, the Nordic countries where parental leave is shared between men and women and it has full superannuation or or pension payments associated with it all the way through. So in that instance, it's a sharing of the caring (laughs) and um, you're accumulating your retirement income at the same time. It's a completely different approach. But I think the, the big system issue to me is the tax one where high income earners get a really big kicker out of it and low income earners if say if you're earning 18 grand a year you don't pay tax on your income and you don't get a tax benefit for saving for super essentially at the moment you get this low income super um, tax offset which simply repays you the tax that you have, the 15% you have to pay on your super because it's completely unfair. What would be fair would be that you got an actual contribution into your account equivalent to 15%. So you got a kick the same as as um, high income earners. I understand. So can I weigh in on this? Of this? course. Yeah, please do. I, I think um, Kate's right. This is one of the really significant ways that the system um, fails to be well targeted and I think even in the retirement income review which was a really significant report that was done on our superannuation system and how it could be improved it recognised that the structure of tax concessions which you know has been impacted by a range of other changes that have been made in the tax system but effectively what it means is that um, the more you earn and the wealthier you are the greater the actual percentage and dollar amount of support you get for putting money into your retirement savings. So those at the top end get the biggest um, benefit from this and the highest level of support, which compounds, and the bottom 30% get basically nothing, which is where most working women are in income distribution terms. So this has a really significant impact. So we have a very significant amount of expenditure, $47 billion, I think, um, next year. Um, And in a few years, it will eclipse the amount that's spent on the age pension that is really poorly targeted, that is not helping to support the accumulation of an adequate level of retirement savings for those 
for whom we know there's a real issue with adequacy and um, very inefficiently allocating a very high-level support to those who will who have already surpassed, you know, a very comfortable standard of living in terms of what they would be projected to be receiving when they retire. So it's an uncomfortable political conversation, but I think it's one that's unavoidable in the in coming years that we need to really look at is this the most, is this fair, is this efficient and is this sustainable? Um, and certainly it's something that Women in Super has really put forward as something that would be a positive thing that could be done to improve outcomes for women in a really well-targeted way. Um, we've put forward the suggestion that an additional contribution be made um, into the accounts of uh, low-income earners focused on younger women uh, and with some means testing in terms of their uh, um, uh, accumulation so that we're really making sure it's going into supporting those who really need that um, additional support in terms of achieving their retirement outcomes. Um, this is not, you know, I, I just think it makes so much sense that we have a system where um, government support, which is really important that everybody is getting that support for their retirement savings, but that we make sure that it is calibrated so that it's providing support where it's really needed. At AIA, our dream is to champion Australia to be the healthiest and best protected nation in the world. To achieve this, we are continuously innovating to develop and deliver customer-led life, health and well-being propositions that help people live healthier, longer, better lives. To find out more, visit aia.com.au. It also has the advantage of being non gender specific as well. It it, um, it enables the politics or the real politic of what of mm. the system to say we are helping low income earners. Now the fact that X percentage of, of low income earners happen to be women um, yeah. is almost kind of irrelevant. So it makes it, it I would have thought an easier political sell rather than a harder mm. one. Yes and, and it's funny because as well as being, um, as you noted at the beginning, the policy chair of Women in Super, I'm also an executive of CBUS. And so they're kind of opposite demographic because CBUS, the vast majority of members are men. But actually there are many men who also work in low-income roles, who come in and out of the workforce for very different reasons typically than women are, but who are also facing, you know, poverty in retirement and... You know, I know we're going to talk a little bit later about the um, work in relation to the Retirement Income Covenant, but, you know, if you look at the levels of homelessness in retirees, by far the largest growing group of um, those joining the homeless queues are retired single women who are renters. But I can tell you that there's a fairly significant group of single men who are in the same situation. Um, addressing the gender retirement gap Certainly, it's going to improve the lot for women, and there are a lot of women who are single in retirement. But this is also about improving outcomes for men, and and those broader issues of gender equity make for an improvement in quality of life for all Australians. So it is, you know, it shouldn't be viewed as just something that's going to be of benefit to women. Good point. The, however, there are still differences um, that that men and women experience through their working lives. 
given a, 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 a crystal ball, if you like, or, or your wish, what what do you think we can do to to fix or to to try and even up the balance um, between men and women? Um, so I think um, Women and Super has got a really clear um, articulation of what they think needs to be done and there's a real focus on what we can do within the retirement income system itself. Obviously there's a broader debate around gender equality and measures to improve outcomes for women and economic participation and the work that Wajir does in terms of the gender retirement, I mean, the gender pay gap. So, so the more um, systemic issues. They're, yeah. they're obviously really big ones, but the ones that we can focus on and that we as an industry have a responsibility to address are those that relate to the way our system works and the way our system is actually exacerbating the problem. So certainly the increase to the SG is critical. And, you know, that's obviously now seems to be proceeding. It was quite politicised for a while. But the thing that that does is it actually improves absolute outcomes for women. And that's, you know, it's that improvement in the, the level of adequacy in absolute terms that makes a real difference to the life of women, particularly those who are at the um, lower end of income earnings and more likely to be otherwise experiencing poverty in retirement. Um, the um, payment of super on pay parental leave is not something we've spoken about, but that's another really important measure that has a meaningful, you know, average impact on women's outcomes at about 14000 But it's also really important because most of parental leave is taken by women and it's the only form of paid leave that doesn't attract superannuation. So, you know, that's an example of a system setting that is just outright discriminatory. Um, and it's within our grasp and we should be we should be fixing that. We also spoke about tax. So, um, you know, there's a, a smaller change, which is actually making sure that that list, though, that Kate spoke about keeps up. Every time we change tax settings on income tax, we throw out the listo. So we're now back to the situation where there are some low-income earners who are penalised when their money goes into super. So let alone getting the kind of very generous thousands and thousands of dollars of support that go to those who are high-income earners, they actually lose money when it goes into super. So making sure that listo is, um, you know, rebalanced every time there's a change in income tax settings is important. But I think a more substantive um rebalancing or review of the way tax concessions support savings for retirement is is another really important thing that we really must address and that's a way that there could be a very significant improvement in retirement outcomes especially for low-income women mm. kate you've probably got yeah. some <laughs> well <laughs> i agree with all of that obviously and i mean i think it's salutary to think that of those low-income earners, the cohort that are covered by that listo, two-thirds of those people are women. You know, it's hundreds of thousands of women are in that low-income category. So that's where you would have a big impact on their super savings and on the general outcomes if you did that. And one thing that we've, um, through Women in Super, have argued for 
is that there needs to be proper gender analysis of the impact of policy and that this was ceased, basically, by Tony Abbott when he was elected. Um, so, and there have been lots of reforms put forward as being helpful for women, but no analysis of how helpful and to which women and whether they also accidentally were really helpful to the men who are already benefiting from the system. So is it money well spent? So things like adding to your savings or spouse contributions, which can be good, but is it the best way to spend what money you're trying to direct at improving things for women? When you have, you know, 200, 300,000 in low earning areas that are never going to be able to probably save extra or have a spouse, most likely low-income earners are married to low-income earners often, so their spouse isn't going to be able to contribute. So is that the best approach to trying to fix the problem? Mm. Look, Can I add another thing oh, to that? Of course, Robbie, no problem. Work? So I think the other one that is often put forward or put forward on occasion as a way of addressing the gender retirement gap, which is to give women better financial literacy, which obviously we should do. But is that a solution to the systemic problems and obstacles that are faced by women in terms of accumulating enough for retirement? The solution shouldn't fall to individual women. And, you know, when you're a low learner who has experienced discrimination, who has, um, you know, come in and out of the workforce... Financial literacy is only going to be able to go so far in terms of addressing those underlying causes that lead to such different outcomes and that are experienced by, you know, very significant numbers of women within the system. So, you know, I'm not an opponent of um, financial literacy, but it shouldn't be thought about as a cure to the gender retirement gap. I understand. All, all excellent points. But let's pivot now to the issue of age. Um, what do you think are going to be the most compelling issues facing our super system as the number of Australians entering retirement age starts to skyrocket? Um, it's already started and it's only going to get um, worse, if you like. Um, there are going to be more and more people over the age of over the age of 65. What do you think are going to be the major problems? Kate, is this something you'd like to start off with? Well, I'll have a bit of a go. Like, there is a, a well, there will be many, many more people entering retirement with some super, but I think we need to um, have a realistic appreciation of what most of them will have. You know, so we talk in averages often, and so you say the difference between men and women's average um, superannuation account at retirement, and that might be, you know, two. Near, say 300,000 for a man and, you know, 240 or whatever it is for a woman. But but it's around those figures. So you think about that, like that's the average. So loads of people have less than that much. It's what they're entering. So realistically, for most of the members of the funds that I've been a director of over the years, these people are going to be on the pension, most of them, and this will be money that supplements them in retirement. So they're not sort of 
swanning around with the big bucks, you know, if they take some of that lump sum at the start to do something radical like maybe get a new small car as they enter retirement or a few white goods or do a bit of repair if they're lucky enough to own a home, then they will have a small allocated pension that adds to how much they have out of the age pension. And they will have a more comfortable but not a um, swimmingly luxurious retirement. So I think we have to think about the vast cohort. So at this point in time, there's loads of people are going to be like that. Loads and loads of people in industry funds, their average balances are around that. And it will make a significant difference, but it's not massive wealth that they're retiring with. So I think my my take on it is the impact of it is a lot more people are going to be re- much more comfortable than were they on the pension and that will obviously help in a general sense because they'll be able to afford things that contribute to, you know, sort of economic activity in society. Um, but it's not... Um, I don't see it at this stage as being, you know, sort of a whole lot of very, very wealthy older boomers who are, you know, sort of riding on riding on the backs of, of the millennials. The millennials will be accumulating their wealth as they go through and will be much, much better off at the end of the day. Good point. So what do you think of the Retirement Income Covenant? What, what does it need to achieve? What, what in your minds would be, the, would be the best outcome? Robbie, I think you, you expressed an interest in, in talking to this one. Yes, and, and just um, if I can just go back and just I think there's a couple of other groups that are worthwhile calling out before we go on to the Retirement Income Covenant of course. who are really being left behind. And, again, this was something that was called out in the um, Retirement Income um, report. So the review that was done on the retirement income system called out two groups who are really um, very vulnerable and, you know, the system, it's partly because the system is still immature, but it's also because of some fundamental assumptions in the system, which if you don't live your life according to those assumptions, you're going to be really left behind. So the first group is those who don't own their own home because our system is based on an assumption that you own your own home. So the rate of the age pension, the SG rate, all of this assumes that when you are retired, you don't have any debt and you own your own home. So um, the Retirement Income Review called out that those who are in the private rental market, 30% of those people are living in poverty in retirement, so below the poverty line. Um, And it called that there needed to be a more immediate solution to address the... um, financial situation that they face. Um, So it's not a problem for the super system to fix. It's really a social security issue. Um, The second group, who is one very close to my heart at CVAS, is people who don't get to work all the way to age pension age. So the majority of CVAS's members are physically broken, um, unable to get work, face discrimination, you know, it's either injury or physical degeneration, but most don't even make it to 60. And so when you're an early retiree, you not only miss out on 
those last few years, which really do a lot of heavy lifting in terms of um, consolidation. And those who work in the industry will know how important those final few years are for that accumulation of your capital that will support you through retirement. But there's also much less support because you're not age pension eligible. So if you retire when you're 53 or 57 and not you're not choosing to retire, you just cannot get work or you're unable to work, then your financial situation is pretty dire. Um, so it's certainly something that we're thinking about in terms of our response to the Retirement Income Covenant. But again, it's another group. So the report found that those who retire early, 30% of them will live below the poverty line in retirement. So, you know, a very vulnerable vulnerable group that because of the way the system's designed are really being left behind and we need to be thinking about how the system can better support those two groups as well. And, Robbie, with those as well, there's worth um, mentioning the latter-age caring responsibilities of women, you know, calling the sandwich thing, looked after your children, but now you're looking after either your grandchildren or aged parents and, again, at that latter stage um, are sort of semi-retiring early but drawing on your um, income. So, Stuart, you asked about the Retirement Income Covenant and I think your question was what, what is it that it needs to achieve? Yes. So I, I'm a big fan of the Retirement Income Covenant. I think it's a really positive step forward because it does give funds the certainty about what they can do to lean in and provide the very best support to their members in terms of making the most of their retirement savings. So that's that's really important, um, you know, and a positive step forward compared to the situation we're in. But I would make two points that I think are relevant to the conversation that we're having today about equity, and that is... Um, Funds will do their very best. They will design the best supports that are based on an understanding of their members and what their members need. But even the very best support is not going to fundamentally alter the situation, um, especially for those groups that we've called out as being very vulnerable. If a woman, you know, ends up with stuff all super by the time they retire, there's not much that can be done in terms of fund strategy to help. I mean, they can be armed with the best information about the age pension and making the most and even a small amount of super on top of the age pension makes a fundamental difference to their quality of life, but it's not going to fundamentally alter their outcomes. Um, so um, the other thing is the system is still very complex. So I remember being in Canada and what I was at a fund and they were demonstrating the process of their members retiring and it took five minutes. So it was a Canadian pension fund and obviously the whole system works differently. So the retirement income system is integrated with the social security system and it was a five-minute process for the member to go through. I think about the system and the age pension is mind-numbingly complex and it's almost like there's as little information as possible to make it as hard for people to qualify or to even access it. And we know many of our members, it takes months to jump through all the hoops to get, you know, even though they're eligible, to demonstrate they're eligible is is a very lengthy and difficult process for a normal person to navigate. Um, 
And then you have to understand super, and that will get more complex as we provide more sophisticated products, which will be better for members, but they'll also be harder for them to understand and harder to understand how they integrate with the age pension, which still most people will also receive. So, you know, we have a system in accumulation that recognises that individuals are very challenged in terms of understanding the long-term implications of making long-term financial decisions is very hard. There's psychological problems, there's behavioural problems. Um, We should be seeking to make it as simple as possible. But now we've set an architecture in retirement where it's up to the individual. You know, the fund can support, but basically all of the responsibility sits with the individual to determine how they're going to make the most of their super. So I just really question, and I know there's been um, work done over the years. I know Jeremy Cooper, when he did his um, review that developed the MySuper product concept, that talked about a default setting in retirement. So I really wonder whether we don't need to be doing more to take the complexity out of the decisions, still with choice, but to make it a bit easier for people to navigate. I understand. Kate, do you have anything you would like to add at this point? No, I, no, not really. I think Robbie's covered it really well. Thank you. We're, look, we're almost out of time. Um, two very quick questions, though. One, what do you think will be the challenges facing younger Australians as the super system matures? What, what, what are the unique problems they may face? Because we've spoken a lot about the um, the, the older people. Um, so what about the kids? What, 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 what do you think they're going to face as they move through this? I like some of the the things that I think might be challenging for them are in fact outside the super system I guess the same as affects women in that I think the changes in the nature of employment the the move to gig and insecure and and other styles of employment and also one thing we haven't mentioned which is no requirement to save if you self employed the self-employed aren't compelled to save super for themselves which disadvantages women currently at times um so I think those sorts of changes like I think we really have to think about have we built this system that's really good and then we're allowing the employment context to actually pull people out of it in future so the future could be great for young people that they'll be saving earlier, accumulating the money, which will be working for them, hopefully more equitably if we make some changes. Or is it that more and more will be leaking out of the system and not saving as much as one would hope for a, a secure retirement? understand. Robbie? Yeah, I'd add a point that I made earlier, which is that we know that the groups who are really left behind by the current, by the system currently, those who don't own their own home and home ownership rates are going down, as we know. It's a real issue in Australia and it's certainly one for the younger generation that they're already leaning into that. But when they get to retirement, if that hasn't fundamentally changed, then the issues that are being faced by current people who are renting in retirement, which is that the system settings are all based on an assumption that you own your own home will be present. So I do think that's that's another topic that will be quite important for us to think about, you know, in terms of the way the system works and um, whether we need to make changes if there are fundamental 
um, differences in home ownership rates by the time the younger generations get through. Yes, and home ownership is certainly uh, certainly high on the agenda at the moment, particularly with an election coming up. Um, yeah. We okay, are. Can I make one more point about that? Of, of course, Robbie. Well, yes. It's not. It's a supply problem. So, while there's a relevant, it's a relevant issue for the design of our system. Super is not the solution. <laughs> super is just going to make the problem worse because. Um, it's a problem with supply. So anything that increases the price is going to make housing even less affordable. So it's about what we can do to boost supply and that would be what would fundamentally change that. So can I read into that that you you think that drawing down on your super for a deposit for a home loan is uh, not a good idea? I think it's a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> Shocking idea. <laughs> At least, at least, at least, that's a very, very clear opinion. But both of you, thank you very, very much indeed for your time. We are out of time. Um, it's been a terrific conversation. Um, thank you again. Thank Thanks you very much. No problem at all. <laughs>